But uh, we're blessed to be here this morning. I'm still in the book of James. I'm going to try to finish the book of James up in the next two weeks just because I'd like to move on. Amen. I really love the book, but I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, ADHD, I guess, and I need, to, I need to get into something. I got other things stirring, you know what I'm talking about? But I really love the, the book of James. And the book of James, it, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Like James is calling some stuff out among his people. And I go to James chapter 4, and that's where we're at this morning, and it's really no different. So I'm going to title this message, Friend of the World, based on what James says. But in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, we're just going to work through this this morning. And here's what it says. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we just ask you to bless and anoint your word and allow it to do its work in our hearts and in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So he starts out right out of the gate, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And, it, and this is kind of interesting because, you know, us Christian folks, we just don't quarrel and fight with one another, do we? We do. We actually do. We, we fight and we quarrel a lot of times, sadly, just like the rest of the world. And so many of the letters that you see written by Paul the Apostle to the church, or even in this instance, James to the church, he's addressing some issues where he's basically saying, look, you boys are following Jesus now, and you've got to learn how to live a life that is separate from the world. You don't think like the world. You don't have the same value system of the world. But he says, here's what's going on. What, what indicates to me that you're still in friendship with the world and you still hold to many of the values of this world system is that y'all are fighting and quarreling among one another. And he's saying your own issues, your spiritual issues, your spiritual problems, your desires, everything that you're going through, when they show up and they manifest, if you got something going on in your heart, you know where it usually manifests. It manifests in your relationships. Because you're a relational person. You're a design. We are relational beings. And when we've got something going on in our hearts, it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with others. And that is how it begins to manifest. And so he's talking about this and he says, what are causing these wars? Maybe you're discontent. Maybe you're jealous. Maybe you want more. Maybe you ain't got the job you wanted. Maybe you're not getting the money that you wanted. Maybe there's something that's going on that you're not getting what you want and it's causing you to be frustrated. It's causing you to be angry and you started to go to battle with someone or something because you're frustrated internally. You ever done that? I mean, we've all done it at some point or another. We're not getting our way. We're not getting what we want. We want something done, and frustration and anger creeps in, and then we start to go to war with somebody. Now, here's the thing, because when we talk about the church, oftentimes, even as a pastor, it's like there's always somebody at war with one another inside the church. And, and you know, my, my whole thing is I try to keep it to a point where it's as minimal as it can be, right? Like, I don't, want, I don't want it to spread. I don't want it to infect. I don't want it to cause division. If we can keep it localized and work it out, that's the goal. Do you know that as a Christian, Jesus basically even says this. He says, look, if you all going to come into worship this morning, and you know that your brother has anything against you, a, no, a, a modern translation would say it like this. Don't lift your hands up and sing, no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, until you go and make it right with your brother that's like one of the most simple Christian principles in all of the Bible yet it is one of the least practiced principles by Christians they will hold grudges and worship and say we're just going to move on when they have not moved on when they have not forgiven when they have not reconciled when they have not dealt with their issues and he says why are these quarrels why are these fights happening among you it's because of something that's going on in your heart I like what Paul said I didn't put these verses up but Paul was talking about to the first Corinthians at one point. He was saying, look, some of you all are fighting and quarreling. And he said, and you go to a judge, you go to courts, 
to try to get this thing resolved. He said, are you all not followers of Christ? Do you not know that in the judgment you're going to judge angels and you all can't even reconcile over some trivial differences? You're going to have to take it to court. And he actually says in 1 Corinthians, I don't have this one up there, but he says this. I love it. He said, wouldn't it be far better to just take it and to let yourselves be wronged and forget it? All you're doing is providing fuel for more wrong, more injustice, bringing more hurt to the people of your own spiritual family. What he's saying is, is that if you can't work things out at the end of the day, one of the, here's the thing. You got something wrong with your brother, you go to your brother. If they don't hear you, you get another brother, you go with them. If they don't hear you then, he says, look, if you can't work it out or at least agree to disagree and forgive one another and move on, he says, that person you ought to treat like an unbeliever. That's a hard word for us, isn't it? Because we think we can be believers and hold grudges and be unforgiving, and you simply cannot do it. And I know this is a strong word this morning, but this is the same kind of word that James is trying to bring to the people of God because he knows that it will undermine the very fabric of the spiritual family if we're all holding grudges and just saying, ah, we'll just, we're just move on. It's going to destroy us, folks. And so this is something that we have to deal with. He said, wouldn't it be better to just be wronged and move on than to let it spread and vocalize how frustrated and angry you are and maintain that fight and that quarrel? He said, no, there's a better way to do it. We're in God's family. We're called to forgive and we're called to reconcile. But if Satan is going to attack anything, he will attack our unity. He will attack our unity. And he's going to try to get you stirred up and angry and frustrated. And here's the thing. Everybody falls into this category. You ever been frustrated with a brother or sister? You ever been aggravated with a brother or sister? I tell you, so many times we get lumps in our throats because we feel like we need to actually go to our brother and sister and deal with something. We don't know how they're going to receive it. We don't know if they're going to get angry. We think in our minds, well, they're just crazy. They'll lash out and they'll beat me half to death. <laughs> and the reality is, is what I found is I've had to do that being a pastor several times throughout my life, and it makes me sick. I don't enjoy doing it, but I do it in obedience to God and to God's Word. Amen. And then so when I go and do it, what I'm finding is that, you know what? People are actually a lot more humble than I give them credit for. Eight times out of ten, people will say, you know what? I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll change. I'll do better. Now, a couple of times, you'll find somebody that's just going to be proud and resist you and say no, but... And that, 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 that's its own issue, but we're going to move through this anyway, right? Amen. So here's the thing. He says, he says, what are these fights and these quarrels among you? Why, where are they coming from? He asked the question. Now, he asked the question. So if I ask you, hey, why are y'all fighting? Anytime I ask somebody why are y'all fighting, they come with their answer, don't they? Well, I'll tell you why we're fighting. And they throw a little sass on it. I'll tell you why we're fighting, because he did this, and they said that, and they're doing that, and they should have done that, and they've heard, and, and all it is is the blame game of what they're doing. So if I ask you why you're fighting, you've got your tale of what happened and what they're doing. But if instead God gives the answer, his answer is a little bit different than, they, than ours, and he says, before you look at them and point the finger at them, you need to look inside. Because what's going on in your world is not really, it's really an indicator of what's going on in here. And he says, before you look at them and before you point out there, it's not what's happening out there or with them so much as what is going on in here. And he actually ends up saying, here's the issue they come, he says in verse 1, is this not it, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Your passions are at war within you. You all know about this, right? Your passions being at war within you. Now, different translations like we'll say your lusts or your desires. This Greek word is a very specific word. It's hedone. It's the word we get hedonism from. Y'all ever heard hedonism? I say words all the time. People say, I don't know what that word is. Hedonism is kind of this doctrine that is adopted by modern society that whatever feels good to you, just do it. That's what hedonism is, and it's actually been around for a long time. But the word that, that we get hedonism from, it means sinful, it, it's a sensual pleasure. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. We, I, I used to teach this book. I like this book a lot. There's a book by a guy named Oscar Wilde. Y'all ever heard of him, Oscar Wilde? He wrote this book called The Picture of Dorian Gray. 
They actually let me teach it at OBI. And, uh, and I said, look, this is going to have spiritual value to it. I promise the book's a little bit crazy. This dude, he, he gets into some stuff, but I can use it as a means of teaching these kids some valuable lessons. And they let me teach the book. So Oscar Wilde wrote this book. Oscar Wilde was born like 1850, lived over in France. He died in France like 1900. And he, he was kind of a wild guy, hence Oscar Wilde, right? I don't know. That's just his last name. <laughs> So he wrote this book, and in the book, here's what happens. He's a young man, good-looking man, good-looking man. And he meets with this guy named Basil, okay? And uh, Dorian Gray meets with this guy named Basil, and Basil paints this beautiful picture of him. And one of their friends, this guy named Lord Henry, comes over, and while they're painting this picture, they're just thinking, man, that is, look at that image of you. You'll never look this good again ever. This is going to pass away. You're going to get old. You're going to get wrinkled and everything. And, and Lord Hendry goes into this. He basically starts preaching a message while they're standing there painting the picture. And he preaches this message that really beauty and sensual fulfillment are the only things worth pursuing in life. He's like, you get, you're going to die soon. The only thing worth pursuing is what feels good to you in this moment. Do it and withhold nothing. If you feel it, you should not suppress it. You should go after it with all of your heart and pursue it. And that's what hedonism is. It's this idea that we can fulfill ourselves and find happiness by pursuing whatever we feel when we feel it and don't restrict any pleasure from ourselves. Just go after it wide open. And so, you know, in that moment, Dorian Gray buys into this philosophy and he decides to sell his soul. He makes an inner vow and he says, you know what? As long as I can live that life where I can pursue pleasure without any cost, without any consequences, let me do that and let that picture take all of my aging and all of my sin. And there's a transa transaction that takes place and this man dives into it. He, he fulfills every pleasure. He withholds nothing. He goes into all kinds of sinful behavior and day by day he's looking at this picture and after a night out he'll come in and he'll look at that picture and it just looks like something's a little bit off with the picture. And then day by day goes by, year by year goes by and the picture begins to get marred and it begins to get ugly and it's reminding him, see he's looking beautiful on the outside. People are amazed. They're thinking, man, why do you look so good still on the outside? You look so beautiful, man. And the, you, you spend the nights out like, how is it? And he knows, though, because he sees that picture of internally all, all, all of his sins are being, being posted on this image. And so finally he hides that thing in a closet. He says, I can't stand to look at it anymore. And you know what he ends up doing? In the end, he goes up. He, he senses what's happening internally in him, even though outwardly he's not changing. He goes up and looks at that image in the attic, and he, he sees the horrifying consequences of his sin in that image. And he takes a knife, and he begins to tear that image apart. And in doing so, he kills himself. Now, it's a crazy story. But it's this reality of the fact that when we pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, inwardly we end up devastating ourselves and we begin to mar ourselves internally. And we all sense that to some degree. He pursues this. Now, Oscar Wilde, some people will say he wrote that book and it was kind of a book that was, that was somewhat about himself and his own life and what he was dealing with. And, and people claim that on his deathbed, he called his lover and he looked at him and he said, go get me a priest. Only God is big enough to save me now. And that's very interesting, but here's the thing. People live lives just like this, and I'll even venture, I'll go so far as to say that people who name the name of Christ, name the name of Christ, but internally they have decided to pursue what gives them pleasure when it does give them pleasure. Amen. And so, what is at war within you? Is it lust? Is it... The love of money. Do you want more success and notoriety maybe or fame? Or, or is it covetousness? Are you just craving what other people have, looking at everything that other people have and just craving that? What is at war within you? Because something is. And the Christian life is about learning to live in the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions so that we can live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. But something's at war within you. And here's what I would like to say. You know, there's, 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 there's actually also two kinds of Satanism. Are you aware of this? Uh, one is Luciferianism. They got witches. They've got covens. They've got practice. They have holy days. Uh, they offer certain sacrifices. And that's Luciferianism. It's very organized. It's kind of like a mimicry of church. But then there's another kind just called Satanism. And there's only one law. You don't have to do anything. There's, the whole of the law is do what thou wilt. That's their one commandment. 
You do anything you want to. If, you, if it feels good to you, do it. If you want to watch that, watch it. If you want to eat that, eat it. If you want to drink that, drink it. Whatever it is that comes to your mind, don't suppress it, fulfill it, and go after it. And this is hedonism. These are these pleasures that war within us. And here's the thing. We've got to be honest about what goes on in here. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I've got to be honest about what goes on in here. I, as a pastor, am currently in the process of sanctification. You realize that? So I don't stand up here as a perfect man. I stand up here as a flawed man who is in a relationship with Jesus and seeking to walk alongside with you all as we point to Jesus and go after him with all of our hearts. But I can promise you this this morning that this week I've had to come before the Lord in repentance. There's things that the Lord is constantly dealing with me about. He deals with me about my attitude all the time. He deals with me about this fact, like, like I've got this personality that, that is like, I, 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 I don't like demands on my life. And when, and when a lot of things come and people are demanding all the time, and, and don't take this as, as, as don't call me or nothing like that. That's not what I'm saying. It's an internal issue with me. It's a sinful thing in me that I'm confessing right here. That sometimes when I get overwhelmed, I see things in life as a burden Rather than being able to joyfully serve and love my family and my friends and my church, I start to internally feel things as a burden. And that's just my own sinful heart. And I lay that before the Lord and I said, this is not right. My attitude, my mood, what I'm feeling right now, God, this is not right. I should not be feeling these things. Let me serve. Because it's not about me and it's not about my comfort and it's not about my desires. It's about me laying down my life to serve others and do so joyfully with love. And so that's where I'm at. I'm wrestling. So I'm confessing a sin to you this morning just saying because we're all in this together. But if we're not aware of what's really going on inside of us, it's going to be impossible for us to yield to the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, I need help in here. Change me in this area. And so I'm confessing that just to let you know that we all need to yield because Jesus wants to work on us. And here's the good news is while we've got passions and desires in our heart, and I've dealt with this my whole life, right? When I first got saved, there were passions that I had in my heart that Jesus came in after I sought him and dealt a death blow to some of it. Cut it off at its source. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't still have some sinful passions that stir up or inclinations or temptations. I'm tempted just like every other man. But now, out of a relationship with Jesus, I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to say no when those things offer a hand. And this is what Jesus is helping us walk out, but he's constantly dealing with us and saying, you need to lay down this selfishness. You need to deal with what's going on in your heart. And in verse 2, he says this. He says, you desire... And you do not have. And you know, I think probably deep down, everybody's got a different personality. You know what I'm saying? But, but one of my greatest desires is just to be left alone. And that's not a good desire. Because I'm designed for community and for love. And if you all leave me alone, I can't grow into that. Do you understand? That's sinful. My desire to be left alone is sin. And I repent of it this morning. Amen. I'm just I'm trying to be honest with you guys because because like even the smallest things that we let infiltrate our hearts it's trying to undermine what God wants to do in our lives and so we desire certain things and we don't have them now he says so you murder well I'm like I ain't killed nobody God like that that's the thing you know whenever we whenever we sin real bad to be like well I'm a good guy I ain't killed nobody well praise God you know I mean good job he says you covet and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. Now, let's talk about this murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, here's what Jesus said. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say unto you, if you're angry at your brother, you're in danger of hellfire. Good word this morning, isn't it? If you're angry at your brother, you're in danger of hellfire because he knows that that's something in your heart. That anger that you're holding toward your brother is something in your heart that at the end of the day, when it's full grown, it is the spirit of murder. You may have not murdered physically, but you have committed heart murder through anger at your brother. And he says, you need to get to the root of that that is going on because here's what happens. When you can't get what you want or maybe somebody else has what y'all want. Anybody in here ever tried to keep up with the Joneses, you know what I'm talking about? And you covet what they've got and you cannot obtain it and you cannot get it. So what do you do? You talk about them behind their back and tear them down and you get angry at them. And in your heart, there's hatred toward that person and envy toward that person because they have what you cannot get. 
None of y'all been, been there. I know you're holy. But he says you covet and you cannot obtain. Coveting is an inordinate desire for something that belongs to another. It's a, it finds itself in the Ten Commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey. Y'all been, I've been coveting some donkeys lately. In our modern culture, it would be their vehicle, right? Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's good, what they hold. Don't covet their possessions. And do you know that most of social media and Instagram, for example, is designed for that very particular purpose to create covetousness, and they call it advertising and marketing. They literally now, there are jobs where people are simply influencers and all their job is is to make you covet stuff so you'll go buy it. So companies will actually give people products to say, hey, show this off, make people covet it, and then they'll buy it. Praise God. And, and it breeds this thing in our heart where we never got enough. We're never content. We're never happy. You know, the scripture says godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. And again, it's, it's not that we can't have things. It's not that we can't look at things and say, man, that's nice. I'd like to have that right there. But there's something that happens when it gets in our heart and it takes the place of God. And all of a sudden, we want it above everything else in our lives. It's the thing that we want. It's the stuff that we want. It's the materials that we want. And we begin to covet it. And it does something in our heart. And then he says, you don't ask God. James 4, 2 and 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you want something, why don't you just ask God for it? Rather than covet somebody else's stuff or fight and claw to get it another way, why don't you come to God and say, God, I'd really like to have that thing. And guess what? You know what, God? It says that God loves to give good gifts to His children. But here's what I found out about God. is I've read that verse before, and I've wanted sometimes very selfish, personal things. You know what I'm talking about? Like you pray for a job. I've prayed for jobs, and God give it to me, and then tell me, you're not supposed to take that. Oh, are you serious? I prayed for this. And he says, well, that's not your calling. But it's more money and it's going to provide for my family and it's going to do this. That's not what I called you to. That, job's not your, that job is not what provides for you. I'm who provides for you. And not only that, I'm going to provide for you exactly what you need when you need it. If I give you all that, I don't know, maybe that I can trust you with the stewardship of all that. If I give you all that, will you forget my name and will you move into another direction where now money is your God? See, God wants to keep us in a healthy place where He is first and He will give us good gifts and He will give us what we need. But let me tell you something, we need to learn contentment above covetousness. Sometimes it's a good thing to strive for more in our lives. And sometimes we, everybody needs a good job to provide for their family. That's not the point. The point is this. Have you asked God whether or not He wants you to have that? Have you asked God whether or not He wants you to do certain things in your life with your family? Some people just do things. And they say, well, look, we're just going to do this. God bless it. Protect us as we do it. And I'm thinking, have you even asked God if that's what He wants you to do? Does He want you to move into that house? Does He want you to go to that school? Does He want you to take that job? Is this something that God is actually asking you to do? Or are you just doing it because you covet something and you want something and you desire something so bad that you think it must be God? If I had went those directions, I would not be here today. Because God has... I'm telling you, I, I, you, you'll have pools in life. This almost feels like a little fireside chat this morning. You're going to have pools in life. And some things are good and some things are not. And some things are good, but they're not God's will. And so you have to be discerning of those things because we usually have a stewardship issue. And to be honest, we live in a world right now where people are not sleeping enough. They spend too much. They're exhausted. They're overworked. They're burned out. And they're terrible stewards of their time, their money, their energy. And they have very little time for God. And they find themselves not having enough, frustrated, angry, having mental disorders and issues and depression. And then they end up blaming God for their current situation. And at the end of the day, the problem is they have not stewarded what God has given them faithfully. Amen. And so we have a stewardship issue. And rather than asking Him what I'm supposed to be doing and not... Right, like we should be asking God, God, am I supposed to be doing this or not? 
And what, how do I need to spend my time? How do I need to spend my money? How do I need to spend my resources? But because we've been infiltrated by the world, we miss what God is calling us to, to a large degree. And here's what he says in James 4, 4, now that he's moved on and progressed. And again, James, I hope y'all are receiving this well this morning. I'm trying to be really gentle, but James just ain't gentle. Like, like, because then he says, hey, you adulterous people, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I'm thinking, man, that's harsh, James. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, notice how he calls it out. He calls out a spiritual issue and, and, and declares, you're adulterous people. You adulterous people because God sees our relationship like marriage, but we often see it as friends with benefits. You know, we had two marriages yesterday that are in our church. Ty Finn got married yesterday uh, to Kendra, and, uh, and Landon Bray got married. And, and, and so we, we had two marriages yesterday. And I, I think I, every time I do that, I think through the covenant of marriage, what it means. Because it's a covenant, right? It's not friends with benefits. Right, you understand that? And that, but that's what people want with God, and that's what God is saying. He's saying, if you're going to look at my relationship, you need to look at it the same way that you look at marriage, because marriage is a covenant. It's in rich, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, when things are going good, when things ain't going so good. I don't get to choose, you know, when I'm going to pick this thing up and lay it down. Like, I have made a covenant with a woman, and I've put a ring on my finger to signify I ain't on the, I ain't on the table no more. Like this is a covenant signal that says I am devoted faithfully to one woman. I ain't looking at another woman. I ain't interested in another woman. Don't hit me up and don't slide up in my DMs. I am in covenant with another woman. Do we have struggles? You know what I'm saying? Are we getting older and, and, and maybe more? Like, yeah, we have all that. But I have to fight to maintain that covenant with this woman that I've married. Because it's not friends with benefits. And when you're young, that's what people do, though. It's right. You know, what they prefer is, you know what, here's the thing. I don't really want my friends knowing that we're dating. I just kind of want you when I want you, so I'll call you on the phone when I need something for my own selfish benefits. But as far as me being devoted to you, like coming to you when you're in need or anything like that, nah. And you know what? If I find somebody better, I'll actually dump you and go with them. That's friends with benefits. And he's saying, y'all are doing this in your relationship with God. You guys are doing this in your relationship with God. And he says, no, love is exclusive. Love is devoted. And love is committed. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, can you imagine, can you imagine, I mean, I thought about this because the scripture talks about God being jealous. and We'll work into it. We'll work into it. Okay. So you got two options based on what he's saying. He says, one, you can be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Or two, you can be a friend of God and an enemy of the world. And this is hard for us to understand in today's world because we really want both. We want the world to love us and applaud us, and we want God to love us and applaud us at the same time, don't we? But here's what Jesus says. He says in John 15, 18 through 19, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, it's so interesting today that people just think that Jesus walked around being so kind that everybody loved him. Do you realize that they crucified him? They didn't love him. They hated him. They rejected him. He preached a message that they did not enjoy. Was he loving? You better believe there's no more loving person in the universe that has ever walked the face of the earth. He was more loving than anything you could imagine. But he loved you so much that he was willing to call out your sin. He was willing to call you to repentance. He was willing to go out of his way to the ones who were bound in sin and broken and addicted and caught up in, in sexual immorality and the prostitutes. He spent time with them, but he said, I'm spending time with them because I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, it's not the ones that are healthy that need a doctor. It's the ones who are sick that need a doctor, and that's why I'm with them. Not to affirm them in it, but to heal them and bring them out of it. And so he says, but the problem is, is when I begin to speak this message that you need to change, and you need a Savior, and you need salvation, and you have sin, the world hates that message. They hate that message. I believe it was Leonard Ravenhill that said, you know what, if, if Jesus preached what American preachers preach today, they would have never crucified him. That's a good word there. He says, if you were of this world, verse 19, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You can be the most loving person. You can reach out to people like never before, but you can speak the truth in love, and this world will still hate you. It's just the reality of it. Are we called to hate the world? Absolutely not. We love people even when they do hate us. This is why Jesus taught us to love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Stand in the gap on their behalf and love them anyway. But then he says this. This is where it gets a little bit confusing. John chapter 2, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, don't love the world because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And that can be, that can be said two ways. Either you yourself have not really experienced the love of the Father in such a way. Here's the thing. When I experience the love of God the Father through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, my love for the worldly things cut off. I used to love certain things, and when I experienced the real presence of Jesus, I was like, man, that doesn't even appeal to me anymore. I want this, and I'm willing to protect this. And he says, if you love the world, it's because you've not yet experienced the love of the Father for you. And then he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's saying, do not love the world. Now this can be confusing because some people will say, but don't John 3.16 say, for God so loved the world. So which is it? Do we love the world or not love the world? Here's what he's saying. He's saying God so loved the world. And what he's saying is God so loved the people in the world that he sent his only begotten son to enter into this world and to be not of this world. And Jesus rejected the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and he overcame this world system and all of its demonic influences and said, no, I'm not going that direction, and I'm going to raise up a people who say, no, I'm not going that direction either. I'm walking in an opposite direction of the world so that people can see my life and say, there's light on that. There's glory on that. There's presence on that. That's something different, and that's what I want. So he loves the world so much that he comes into the world, but he overcomes the world, and he rejects the world's values and says, we're not going that direction. We're going in the direction of the love of the Father, and we're moving a different way. And here's what I want to say to you. If you're going to love the world powerfully, you actually have to have a separation from the world. And it's difficult, isn't it, right? Because the world is constantly moving in on us and inundating us and trying to move into our value system. And, and some churches and some groups of people will say, well, we need two degrees of separation. Not only do we need to remove ourselves from the world, but we need to remove ourselves from anybody who even has a foot in the world. And so they just stay over here secluded, not talking to anybody. What I'm going to tell you is that you need to be in this world, but you need to be not of it. That's what Jesus says. There's one degree of separation. I don't have the world's value system, but I'm mixing it up with the people of the world so that they can see the love of God in me and see the good works of God and, 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 and the light of God shine through us so that they say that's different. And it moves on them and it, and it stirs their heart and it brings them to repentance. But here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I believe one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And that was years ago. Charles Spurgeon's one of them old heads, y'all. He's been gone for a while. He said, he said that, and here's what I believe. Our biggest issue in the church today isn't being persecuted by the world, but it's being seduced by the world. We're not under that much persecution at all. Matter of fact, we're under zero persecution. You, you can't talk about somebody saying something negative, negative about you on Facebook as being persecution. That's not persecution. That happens to everybody. I don't care if you run a donut shop. Somebody's going to say something negative about you on Facebook. So that's not real person. Our problem is not being persecuted by the world. Our issue today is being seduced by the world to adopt its values and bring it into the church. And he says there's really three types, right? The lust of the flesh is in the world. Sexual immorality, indulgence, drunkenness, intoxication, gluttony, comfort, and just this innate selfishness that whatever I feel, I should be able to do that. That's the lust of the flesh. Satan offered it to Adam and Eve. He offered it to Jesus. He said, turn these stones into bread. 
Feel your flesh, the lust of the eyes, covetousness, jealousy, materialism, sexual lust. It's the drive of what we see in this world with our eyes and say, we want more of that at all costs. We want success at all costs. And then the pride of life, which is the desire to be your own God, call your own shots and say, you know what? I'm all about myself and I'm trying to promote myself and, and create my brand and do me in the world. And is, is, this not, is this not what we're all tempted and pulled down? And sometimes these, these are called virtuous. If you have ambition, it's, oh, that's virtuous of you to promote yourself like that. And, but, but, so it's a battle that we're resisting and we're dealing with all the time. But next verse, chapter 4, verse 5, notice what he says. He says, do you think, do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the Spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? He jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. Now notice, God, the scripture says, is a jealous God, right? Now, you ever read that? I remember somebody came to me and said, you know, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. That doesn't make sense. That isn't right. And I need you to understand that when God is jealous, it's different than our type of... How many of y'all you ever had, like, dated a jealous boyfriend or something like that? Anybody in here? Like, just high control, looking at your phone, thinking every day, oh, you're cheating on me, and then just going off and flipping out because they're... That's that's an ungodly jealousy, isn't it? That's an ungodly jealousy, and, and nobody wants that type of stuff in their life. But see, God is jealous for a different reason. He's not jealous... For his own sake, so much as he is for your sake. Because he knows that if you give yourself to something else, it will destroy you. But I want you to also understand this. Like, I thought about this. Every morning when I get up, one of the highlights of my day is Andrea gets up in the morning. And I'm really not a morning person, you know what I'm saying? Like, I wake up and I'm kind of like this for about the first two hours. And Andrea gets up and she's like, rise and shine and give God. You know, like, she's doing like dances and stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what in the world? But one of the highlights of my day, one of the highlights of my day is when she goes in and she gets Naomi up, and Naomi's over there, dad, dad, you know, and doing all this stuff. And she said, who is that? Who is that? Who's coming? Is that dad, dad? And I walk in there, and she'll, and she'll you know, brighten up. Like, that's one of the highlights of my day. And, and as I'm reading this scripture, what I imagined was, what if I turned the corner and there was another man in that room? Can you imagine what would go off in my heart? What is that dude doing in there? Imagine, imagine, okay, Andre goes to bed a little bit before me. Imagine I walk into the bedroom. I'm getting ready to get in the bed. She's asleep. And, I, and, and you know, there, my, my spot's all carved in. Like, I've weighed that bed down. Like, there's a spot there where my body is. You know what I'm saying? Imagine I walk in there. There's just another guy laying in that spot. Be like, Andrea, what's this dude doing in the bed? She's like, oh, yeah. Got an open relationship now. Got a few people coming in here and there. You get Sundays, though. We're going to give you Sundays, Clay. If you just sleep on the couch, we'll let you come in on Sunday. And you say, this, that's crazy, Clay. That would, that would never happen. God's saying, no, it's happening with our relationship right now. You let everything else come in during the week. You let everything else. You're a friend of the world during the week. You rub shoulders with all these other lovers. But then you say, God, we'll give you Sunday. And he's saying, no, this is not friends with benefits. This is not you get to drop me during the week and then pick me up on Sunday. This is a covenant relationship. And I'm jealously yearning for you because you know what? It's a sacred place. That bed is a sacred place. My house is a sacred place. The dinner table is a sacred place. That's my space. I'm in covenant with that woman. Ain't nobody else gets to be in there. It's a sacred space. And so when something, if something were to infringe on that, jealousy, a holy jealousy would come in my heart. Because it's of God, because that's my sacred space. And God says, your spirit is his sacred space. He's designed to dwell there. You were designed for the Spirit of God to live right here. And when you open yourself to other lovers and other things and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, he's saying you're opening yourself to other spirits that is not my spirit and I'm jealous over my space. Because that ain't for another, that's for me. We are designed to be united and to be one together. And so God is jealous over his space. And the question is, what are you giving your space to? Are you a friend of the world or are you in love with God? And that's what he's calling us to. But here's the good news is that not only is God jealous, but he's also very gracious. Thank God. Because we've all put things before him, haven't we? 
We've all put things in His place. We're all an adulterous people spiritually. We've all done that. But he says, God is gracious. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know that the dominant characteristic of hell is pride? Satan fell because he was proud. And you know what pride says? Pride says this, you know what, God? I mean, I understand you've got scripture. I understand you've got word. I mean, my opinion is that the Bible's a little bit outdated. I'm not sure if it was really written by you or not. Seems like a bunch of dudes wrote it and like, I, you know, and people get into all that. And like, I've got my opinion, God. You've got yours. Like, I'm going to do my, me. I'll let you in at some points in my life, but at some points, not so much. Do you know what's speaking from your heart at that moment? It's called pride. Because you're putting up resistance to God and saying, no, God, I think I'm going to do my way and you do yours and I'm going to leave you out there because I don't want you in my life just that much. We're going to agree to disagree on some things, but here's what humility says. Humility says, no, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I've been trying this thing to do it my own way and it's not really working out that well. Like I'm still broken, I'm still a mess. Every time I try to fulfill a pleasure and a lust, I've tried it, y'all. I tried to get more money, more women, more dr- I tried all that. And every time I did it, I went deeper into depression. I went deeper into this this sense of anxiety and worthlessness and guilt and shame and all of these things eating me up. And and God is saying, no, no, no. You, you, You come to a place where you humble yourself and say, God, I'm wrong. I don't know how to change this thing. You're the right one. If your word says it, I'm going to submit to it and yield. And that's why he says, but he gives more grace. And here's what I love. When you come to the place where you're humble enough to say, God, I'm the one that's in the wrong. You're in the right. That's when grace is unleashed. Because if you desire, if you truly, I want you to hear me on this one. If you truly desire what God asks you to do according to His Scripture, man, He will pour out His grace and His Spirit abundantly to you. The problem is when you're double-minded and you're not sure if you really want to do what God wants you to do or not. And when you're not really sure, you're still in pride and He resists that. But when you come to a place of humility and say, God, I can't do this. I need help. I'm wrong. You're right. All of a sudden, he says, all right. If you want to do what I'm asking you to do, here's the power to do it. And he gives you that grace, and he pours it out to you. But what place are you in? See, in verse 7, that's why he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. This is difficult. We don't like submitting to people, do we? It's hard. It's really hard to submit. I get it. And God has two types of leadership. He has cooperative and He has commanding leadership. Cooperative is this. Hey, let us reason together, man. Let's talk this through so that we can come to a conclusion together and work this out. And God sometimes reasons with me. He's like, Clay, are you serious, bro? Like, you, you sure you want to do that? And he re- but then there are other times when He gives me a command. I mean, l- last week when I preached, I felt like the Lord gave me a command. I felt like He said, you're going to preach this. You come off James, you're preaching this. So okay, Lord, you're God. Like I, I'm not preaching my message, I'm preaching God's message. And so there's times when he gives us commands, and in Scripture, primarily he gives us commands, right? And, and there's moments, and here's the thing, when you're a parent, you know. When you get a louder volume and you say, hey, don't do that, why? You do it because you love your child. And it seems harsh, it seems commanding, but anytime God seems harsh or commanding to you, sometimes I do things to Naomi, I take like a knife from her, and I'm thinking, we do the same thing with God. And all I really want to do is keep her from poking her eye out. And God just wants to keep me healthy and and in right relationship and walking well, but I hate it when He tells me no. Amen. Y'all still with me this morning, So he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You submit to God. You say, all right, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. And then you resist the devil because here's the thing. There are going to come seasons in your life where all of a sudden you don't know why. And I know y'all go through that. There are moments. You're doing good. You've overcome this particular sin for a season. And then all of a sudden, one day, two days, three days, your mind just starts going crazy. All of a sudden, you're more tempted to this sinful behavior than you've ever been before. 
All of it, it's just stirring up in you. You don't know why. You think it's you. In your mind, you're thinking, why am I thinking these thoughts? Why am I feeling this way? And then you start to feel guilty if you're a Christian because you're thinking, I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And you're tempted, and then all of a sudden, there's a greater temptation to lies. Lies you believe about yourself. Lies you believe about people. And then even in our relationships, there's a greater uh, temptation to hold grudges, to get angry, to be frustrated, to not forgive that person, to talk about that person and gossip about that person. And then all of a sudden, there's a greater temptation to independence and to cut ourselves off from God and off from the people of God and move away. Maybe I just need to take a break from church. You know what I'm talking about? Can I tell you that that is a demonic setup? That is how the enemy operates, and he is trying to destroy your life. And in those moments, the Scripture says that you submit to God, you resist the devil, and he will free from you. What Satan wants is for you to resist God and submit to him. And some of us do that exact same thing. We, we had those lies in our minds. We submit to the devil and we resist God and we go with him headlong in whatever direction he's wanting to go. But let me tell you something. I told somebody this the other day. When your mind starts going crazy, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I've had a bad dream, when my mind is going nuts and I sense that crazy attitude, you know what I do? I get alone with God and I begin to pray and there's a moment when the Holy Spirit stirs up in me and I do what my Lord and Savior Jesus said. I speak right into the face of that devil and I speak the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. I don't sit and let it and try, well, I'll try to shake it off. No, I do battle in spiritual warfare. You speak the Word of God out of your mouth. You resist the devil and say, no, you ain't coming in my house. You're not coming in my mind. I'm kicking you out. Here's what thus says the Word of God. And you speak the Word of God in that situation. You know what he does? He will flee from you. I'm telling you, you have got to be discerning of the moments when there is legitimate spiritual warfare going on. Because if you've never been able to discern when Satan is attacking you and the demonic is attacking you, then you are missing something because it's happening. You are in spiritual warfare and you must discern those seasons so that you can resist the devil. And when you do, he will flee from you even though he'll look for an opportune time. So I'm finishing up. Verse 8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So you don't just run from sin, but you run to God. You become, con maybe even as we've preached, you've become consciously aware of something that's going on in your heart that you know is not right before the Lord. That's a great thing. You know what I'm saying? Like God is not mad at you. Matter of fact, God is, is, is warning you to draw near to Him. You know the story of the prodigal son? We, know, we all know that story. The guy says to his father, look, drop dead, dad. Give me my inheritance. I want no relationship with you. I just want your stuff. He goes and he spends it on prodigal living, the lust of the flesh, sleeping around, getting drunk, going to the casino, partying all night until he spends everything that he owns. He finds himself literally so hungry, he's starving. He's eating with the pigs. And it says he comes to himself. And he thinks about going back to his father, but he says, man, my father's never going to receive me. I'll go back. I'll be a servant. But even being a servant is going to be better than the position that I'm currently in. So he decides to go home. And rather than his father being angry at him, ready to punish him, ready to whip him, ready to say, no, you ain't coming back now. He sees him afar off and he runs toward him. He girds up his loins, runs toward him, falls on his neck and begins to hug and kiss him while he's covered in pig slop. And he says, my son who was lost has returned home. He said, let's throw a party, kill the fatted calf, put sandals on his feet, a robe on his back, and put a ring on his finger because my son who was lost has come home. That is the Father's heart to us when we are at our worst. And when we draw near to him, he doesn't just draw near to us. He runs toward us. He says, draw near to God. You, you recognize you've got some sin in your life. Don't let that push you away from God. Let it draw you into God. He's the source of freedom. And, I, I, and I, I need you to understand this. And people do not. But the point where you're finally willing to humble yourself, confess your sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've done this and I need legitimate help. I'm wrong and you're right. And you lay that out before God. And you're no longer double-minded, but you're willing to let go of it. I'm telling you, that is where God meets people. He meets the broken heart. The contrite spirit. Not somebody who's proud and is going to hear a message and just sit there with their arms crossed and be like, ah, pff, it's goofy. That's proud. God ain't going to meet you in your seat. There's a point where you have to respond to what God's doing in your heart. 
if he would have stayed in the pig pen, he wasn't going to come out and get him in the pig pen. He's waiting on you to turn. But when you turn, man, he's going to run out after you. He's going to come for you. And so when you know God's heart toward you, here's the proper response. He says in verse 8 through 12, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like, man, this is the least encouraging message ever, Clay. You want my joy to be turned to gloom? I need you to understand this. When I was bound in my sin, before things get better, you've got to come to a place of brokenness. You're happy and laughing in your sin and, and, and just in your life that's totally separated from God. And he's saying, no, you need to come to a place of brokenness. And if you come to a place of brokenness and you truly confess your sin and you let Jesus cleanse you in his blood and you let him put his spirit in you and give you a new heart and a new mind and wash all that stuff away, you're going to experience a joy that this world could never give you. And so he's saying, yeah, you may need to mourn. You may need to be broken for a minute. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Quit being double-minded with one foot in the world and one foot with God. And pick God and He will raise you up. That's the point of healing. That's the point of forgiveness. That's the point of redemption. Some of you have been straddling the fence for so long and God is saying, you've been doing that and you know you ain't happy. You know it's not bringing you joy. You know God is the way. And look, you can't do it on your own, but God is appealing to some of you in your hearts right now to say, if you would just take the step and jump off the fence, I will give you the grace and the power of the Spirit available. Confess your sins. Come to me. Say you need help, and I'll give it to you. This is what God wants to do. This is God's heart. He wants you to come. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And then verse 11 and verse 12, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, the world, we hear messages about sinful activity. And you know what we do? We judge people with it. And he's saying, no, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. You're not here to judge your brother. You want to deal with somebody? Deal with yourself this morning. Deal with yourself. Don't speak evil against the brother. Don't, don't bring yourself into that place of judgment because here's the thing. Jesus Christ has come on my behalf and on your behalf because every single one of us stand, stood guilty before a holy God. And he loved us so much, he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what they could not do. I'm going to submit my life to God. I'm going to resist the devil when he tempts me. But then I'm going to go in their place, overcoming this world and all of its temptations. I'm going to live a sinless life, pure and holy. And then I'm going to go to the cross and take the punishment on that cross that they deserved so that they could have the eternal life and the freedom and the peace and the salvation that I deserve. And there was an exchange that happened on that cross. And God says, I'm offering you eternal life through my son, Jesus Christ. And this is the way. And he is ultimately the judge. He was raised again from the third day. On the third day, he is seated at the right hand of power. And now he's the only one that's going to be able to judge anybody. And one day, every single one of us is going to stand before him in judgment. And he's going to offer that verdict. And if we are washed in his blood, we stand not guilty. And that's what he's calling us into. So here's what I want you. I want you to bow your heads right where you're at. And really, this is just a time where I think the Lord is, is saying, this is a moment for you to humble yourself. This is a moment for you to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And see, it's just like that prayer that David prayed. Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because there is such freedom that comes when we're willing to come to that place of brokenness and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you bad. And that's where he shows up. And if there's anybody here this morning and you don't know the Lord and you're at that place maybe for the first time in your life where you say, man, I need Jesus and I don't know him. I don't really have a relationship with him. I've not really submitted my life to him as Lord. And I want to be saved. I want to experience that salvation. And I want to turn back to the Father and just... Give him that opportunity to run out after me, fall on my neck, kiss me, and welcome me back into the family.